So um, I'm, I, I'm going to speak to you about the end times and leadership out of the Song of Songs. And uh, if anyone was on the uh, teaching call with Chris earlier today, it was almost like a, uh, a fantastic segue. It was a fantastic primer to the pump for what I wanted to share tonight. Um, just as, as a background, um, I've been studying eschatology. It's been a personal emphasis of my own personal studies for 20 years now. And um, there's a couple of observations that I kind of wanted to share um, up front, just because I believe some of these observations have helped me see some of the things that I am going to share. And I think that these general precepts, these general kind of uh, insights can help you in your own study. Um, the first observation that I'd like to make is uh, it, book of Revelation was actually the second book of the Bible that I studied through after being born again. Uh, the first one, believe it or not, was Leviticus. And uh, before I came to Jesus, I read Leviticus. I, I picked up the Bible like any book you would read and started at the front <laughs> and started just reading the chapter by chapter. And I got, uh, to my credit, as, a, as an unbeliever, I got all the way through to Deuteronomy and Numbers and then just kind of threw my hands up and just said, this is just weird. <laughs> I read Leviticus and just went... I don't know what the deal is with all these animals and, you know, ripping doves in half and, and butchering uh, animals and burning. I was like, so I think I'm just going to skip to the Jesus part, you know? And so then, you know, I, I was born again. I came to faith and a friend of mine gave me cassette teachings by a teacher in Leviticus. And I heard this preacher just expound Jesus off every page. And I'm like, I read that book. I don't know what that guy's got, but I want it. I want to be able to see Jesus in the word of God like this. I want to be able to see it through, through the revelation of the son of God in all of these things that, you know, I had read before and, and just had so much trouble understanding why it would even be relevant. So the second book was the book of Revelation. And I, I developed a grand appreciation for it because in studying that book carefully, I was taken to so much of the old covenant scriptures and very quickly when, when reading those, I came to a conclusion because when I studied those second, those second coming and the book of Revelation uh, references in the Old Testament, I would find sitting right next to them, I would find scriptures about the first coming as well. And very quickly, I made an observation of, because I'd read some books about it in the process of studying, and I'd seen all these different methods of interpretation and these uh, you know, spiritualizing different promises, different passages, all these things. And when I studied it that first time, and I saw that oftentimes right next to that second coming passage was a passage about the first coming, you know, it struck me. I was like, if, if I follow the method of interpretation that these PhD guys are saying, I could not discern the first coming of the Messiah it would have just been a, an unknowable reality to me. And so I, I esteemed in my heart to, at that point, just go, I am gonna take your scripture in a straightforward way. And so what I found is when I read something, like for example, one of the, of the trumpet judgments, when even John says, something like a mountain of fire is cast into the sea. One of the things I've learned is, 
don't try to superimpose the text into something we can understand. If you can't understand it yet, that's okay. Even John said it's something like a mountain of fire, you know? And, but the fact is, is that when he says a third of the sea perished, and the dramatic impact that would have on humanity that was alive when that experience actually happened, that is something we can understand. It is something that I can grasp. And the more that I, that I approach things that way, the Lord was able to communicate to my heart the weightiness and the significance and the right questions start to come out of you. Not about charting things out and, and you know, parsing every detail and seeming as though it's, the whole thing is knowable, but more the gravity of these severe things. And it's, it's relevant in something we're coming out of right now. How, how shakable the heart of the church and how shakable the heart of the world has been through something that by all measure and accounts is pretty minor in its impact when you look at the global influence. But the response, the response we can learn something from profoundly because in the time that will be like no other, Jesus says that the people on the earth will be fainting from fear and the church will be in danger of their heart, their love heart growing cold. These things are understandable. That's an understandable thing to look at the, the severity that we can understand and go, there's a reason this was given to us ahead of time. Um, there's specifics, like we've heard uh, in different teaching sessions, there are conditions that are placed upon the return of Jesus. Uh, we've heard about the salvation of Israel in former sessions. We've heard about the preaching of the gospel. We've heard, uh, I think in reference, maybe not overtly, the fact that the outpouring of the Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit has to surge and, and will swell in a way that's unprecedented. All of these, all of these prophecies, when, when we study these prophecies about second coming, we begin to see that there are certain things that are placed as conditions for him to rise out from his heavenly estate and pierce the sky and begin to come back. All the events of him coming back into this earthly realm to begin what the book of Acts calls the restoration of all things. So he could restore this earth into a proper habitation for not only himself, but for the Father, that it could be restored back to its original intention and that even the Father would then return and bring back with him the eternal ages. So these conditions, uh, what, and we'll segue right now into, uh, since it's a 30-minute session, I just wanted to share those couple of things in the beginning. When, oh, this last thing, the fact that the number of prophecies about the second coming, the age to come, the events surrounding his return, outnumber the first coming prophecies like three to one, is what the scholars say. And not only do they outnumber, but I'd say that they're more overt. They're easier to read and understand. They're a little more like in your face. It's like, you know, the, the conflict, the glory, the different events. Now, the Jews, the majority of the Jews missed the first coming. And we can't fault them for that because, honestly, it's a little bit enigmatic the way the Lord communicated it. There's a little bit of mystery. I mean, there's some key passages where I don't know how you get around that one. But a lot of them, like the ones in Zechariah, they're kind of nestled in these little prophetic words that are given about events that took place in the history of Israel. And I would just say, generally, a little hard to discern. Now, 
what I've observed is the vast majority of the church is now flipped that around and sitting in a place where the more prominent, more numerically prolific, clearer and more dramatic prophecies have either through methods of interpretation or just plain disregard, plain ignorance in the true sense of the word, ignoring the study of them. It has now become a, a reality that has been relegated out of the conscious understanding of the majority of the church, whether it's through a, an interpretive method or whether it's through just not esteeming how important this subject is. And when I go back and I read, I read the writings of the apostles, they lived under the shadow of that reality. It was a defining paradigm that fueled their, their endurance. It fueled their zeal to preach the gospel. It fueled their appetite for suffering and enduring suffering and hardship and mistreatment. This subject is a preeminent subject of the scripture. And, you know, in all of our efforts and all of our speaking and, and talking about end time revival or end time this, it's, uh, I'll just say it this way, it's a little presumptive of us to talk and pray and cherish so many things that are connected to the end times, but devote very little attention and have very little revelation and living understanding of this great volume of scripture that's been laid out and given to us from the Messiah, from the Holy Spirit, from the Father, with great intention and great purpose to impact our hearts, to give us pictures of things that need that need effort holy divinely inspired effort put into the hearts of believers so that they can push forward to a goal and to a prize that they can set pieces in place so that when the time comes the lord can endorse it and empower it in a mighty way with the power and glory of his spirit so it's a call at the same time it's a call back to what, what are these scriptures? What are the implications? The great volume of it, the weight of it, the ways that the apostles lived under it. Let's return back to that. Let's put it back in the hands of individual, a relevant understanding of it, an understanding that we're here laboring and we will be here to see his coming, the generation of the church that will be here to see his coming, to partner with him through that, the time of Jacob's trouble, through that great travail. To, to lay down our lives in front of Israel, to give ourselves as free will offerings, to express the love of the Messiah to the people of Israel in that time, instead of taking a resurrection that's of this age. So, got that off my chest. <laughs> now I want to talk about one of those conditions, which Chris from the earlier session uh, began to reference it. And one of these... Uh, paradigms, one of these realities that is clear in the Bible that will be established in a reality before the Lord's return. And I'll even say this, it's not even just before the Lord's return. It is so he can return. It's not just something that's going to happen in a vacuum before he comes back. It is actually, I'm going to propose and give a little support from the scripture. It's actually the only reality that when it says come, it will cause him to rise up and return. 
And this is the bridal identity of, of the church, the bridal identity. And it's Revelation 22, 17 that, uh, here, uh, let me sh uh, share it if I can. I can't. Okay, I'll read it. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And what I'm proposing to you is this reality of the bride has been prophesied to be in such a place of prominence, such an experiential reality in the church and in the earth at that time. And the Holy Spirit says, this is the voice. This is the paradigm that I will stand alongside and testify through. This is the paradigm that will provoke the son to initiate those events that must lead to his coming. This is, the, this is the, the, the experiential reality in the church that will cause her to be stabilized enough to endure that time in, in, and, and to be a vessel, to be possessed and filled and exuding the glory of God that will cause the nations to run to the Messiah. It won't be about going out and casting a line. The, the, the prophecy in Isaiah 55, 5 is fulfilled in this reality that you will call to a nation who knows you not and a nation that doesn't know you will run to you because the Lord, the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. And the connection here, of course, in this very passage is that there's a, a voice that, that says, come to the Lord Jesus. And there's a voice that says, come to the waters of life. Come and get for yourself the drink from the waters of life. And this, this is a result. I, I'd like to go shortly to Isaiah 55.5 if you're following with the Bible. I'd like to show the reality of Isaiah 55.1 through 5 and connect it to the Song of Songs as well as the reality that's promised in the new covenant that has been given for all believers so that we can begin to see that when Jesus stood up in John chapter 7 and said, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me. Let him drink of the waters and out of him will explode torrents of waters that give life wherever they go. This is the paradigm of receiving and exuding, becoming a vessel, a, a a drenched vessel that has the abundance of the waters of life, not the anointing just flowing on the external, but has become a vessel whose nature has now been transported into the new creation that can then flow in the same way that the Messiah's nature did, that it would be an internal reality that possesses and flows out so that this age is eclipsed and a testimony of the overcoming reality of the Messiah will flow and overtake believers and unbelievers through that reality of the Holy Spirit being given in the new covenant reality. Again, not just an external flowing of anointing that can come upon a vessel so that they can, they can perform something in the might, in the spirit of might or the spirit of glory, 
but the changing of the experience of the believer so that to fulfill Jeremiah 31's passage, their soul becomes a well-watered garden. That goodness that they, the people of God will stream and flow to the goodness of Yahweh, and he will cause them to have a soul that is it's satiated. It's a drenched soul. It's a soaked soul. It's a, a soul that's become drunk in the waters of life, that it's drank its fill. It's a sponge that's filled and being, every time it's squeezed, it just fills up with more. This is the new covenant paradigm of the, the mature vessel with the Holy Spirit. This is the reality that we see expressed in, in the bride. And uh, let, let's go to Isaiah 55. We'll connect uh, that dot. Again, remember John 7, the Messiah is saying, come to me, anyone who thirsts. Out of, your, out of your inner being will flow water. The waters of life will flow. And the reason I'm saying this is, you know, right now, I think it's a fair statement to say that the reality of the bride exists uh, primarily in word. People know the concept in various ways. We rejoice in the concept. And, but what we're talking about, we're talking about like half of our identity in the new creation. You know, the, the believer relates to the father through sonship, the identity of sonship. Well, the believer is told to relate to the Messiah through the identity of bridehood. And the implications of that, it's, it's obviously, it's more than language. It's more than catchphrase. It has implications in its reality that Paul says, the only thing that Paul could say is, this is a great and profound mystery in Ephesians 5. The fact that the people, the believers in the earth, relate to the Son of God through the paradigm of bridehood and husbandry a union in marriage, all of the special blessings and privileges in marriage, all of the, the concepts of faithfulness and commitment, all of those things that are brought to a climax in the human experience through marriage should, should have a testimony and should speak to us about the way in which we are to relate to our Messiah, the mutual exchange of, of delight, the mutual exchange of, of affections, uh, the ecstatic reality of experiencing union, the, the steadfastness, fastness, the, the commitment that's involved, all of those things are meant to testify to us about a reality of relating to the Messiah as his church. So in Isaiah 55, we'll start with uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I'd actually like to read you just a little a slight paraphrase that I did, just inserting a couple of clarifying statements. And so again, you can hear right away that this is, this is one of the passages that was in Jesus's heart when he, when he was, um, when he was calling people to come in John chapter seven. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Are you all just seeing that Word document? Okay, great. Isaiah 55, 5. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, 
buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money? And here's what he's getting at. Why are you spending your silver? Why the redemption price that I purchased you, you, you with? Why are you spending that on something that isn't actual food for your soul, isn't filling you? Why are you, and your wages, why are you using your labor and your efforts for that which does not satisfy? The word satisfy there, for that which does not bring fullness is what that word satisfaction means. Why, why are we spending the price of our redemption and the great, the great labor and efforts that are in us for a reality that is leaving us short of what the, the Messiah said would be in our covenant? He says, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. When he says that's your soul, let it, it actually, the word for delight, it means become soft, to be delicate. It's like, let your soul be softened with these delightful experiences. Let it be softened out of the fatness of my house, the rich abundance that flows out of the Messiah's nature that comes from his covenant love. It says, incline your ear, come to me, hear, hear and your soul will live. Your, your soul will explode with life. Your soul will have the breath of life and that living water will begin to overtake it. And if you do this, he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant and it will be according to the sure mercies, the faithful covenant love that was shown to David. That call there is calling us into that covenant, if you will, the faithful covenant love. He's calling us to be the bride to his son and to, to relate to him in the new creation realities that he has purchased for us and intended to be ours from his cross, stretching forward into the eternal ages. And his whole statement is this new paradigm uh, will bring it into the leadership now. We'll touch for the last five minutes how the Song of Songs in its truest and, and, and clearest expression is calling leadership out of an old system as she comes in, in chapter one. She comes in chapter one and she says, I'm dark but lovely, the sun has burned me. I'm compromised in my heart. She, she tells the followers who are looking to her, don't even look at me, daughters of Jerusalem. Don't look to me as the example of what a well-watered garden is. Don't look to me as, as an example of what a successful, a successful leader is. I've become burnt out. I'm discouraged. I'm compromised. And she has this cry that erupts in her heart. She says, you, you whom my soul loves, where do you feed your flock? Where do you give them shelter from the burning sun? And the burning sun is, is that, that element of this age, the oppressive nature of life under the sun that's talked about in Ecclesiastes, the element of this age that is able to deplete us of our resources, to, to sap and drain our life, to cause us to liz, live as if we were still subject to this age and the old Adamic nature. 
Why, where is it, Jesus, that you show your flock where they can find rest under the noonday sun and give them to drink of the cool, refreshing waters? Where is it, Jesus? That is the cry and where she begins. Because what she says is, catch this. My, my older brothers, my mother's sons, made me a keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. The psalm is prophesying to leaders who have stepped into an established paradigm and come to a place where their heart is empty, that there's a void within their soul that is not consistent with the covenant with which they exist, I, would, I fully expect as the, as the age comes forward even more, the end of the age, I expect leadership to encounter more burnout. The burnout isn't, isn't a realm of condemnation. As you start to see in this, in this psalm, the burnout, the discouragement, the conscious awareness that in the congregation that they're supervising, they are not producing the type of hope-filled, vibrant perseverance and joy that is given and privileged and accustomed to every believer. It's provided to every believer to come and see this reality. It's the only opening. It's the doorway flinging open to be, walk into the bride reality, to take the step in. It, is a, it requires a gesture of repentance and humility to say that same scripture from Isaiah. We groaned, we gasped, but we gave birth as if it was wind. We gave birth to something that wasn't effective. That's the call. You, who my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you feed them? Where do you shelter them from this influence in the world and in the age? that has depleted me, that has caused me to, to run from my leadership standing, to hide from you. Now, if we had more time, we could walk through the psalm a little bit more, but let's just take it right to the end, and I'll show you Revelation twenty two seventeen. I'll show you the cry of the bride and the reality that she exists in where that cry can come forth, where actually it's where the Messiah says, now, let me hear it. Because the cry that she makes is the one that will come into the heavenly realm and provoke him to stand up and come. And so uh, it's one of my favorite passages in the whole book, Song of Songs. And so I'll just share my screen and we'll read it and then do a quick prayer and hand it over to Roberto. So now remember, in the beginning, he calls, he says, hey, come to the challenging, the mountains, come to the dangerous places with me. He says, I want to see your face and I want to hear your voice because your face is beautiful and your voice is so sweet. He's, he's calling her to come out to that, that place of risk and danger, the place that she wanted to run away with, the place that crushed her spirit before. At the end, here it is. Remember, her, her vineyard was disparaged. Her vineyard wasn't cared for. Her vineyard was being pillaged by the enemy in the beginning. So here's uh, Song of Songs 8.12. My own vineyard is before me. 
You, O Solomon, may have a thousand pieces of silver in abundance, and those who tend its fruit, 200. And he responds, You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. And she responds, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She is now sitting in the foretaste, in the beginning, the first fruits testimony of the restoration of the Garden of Eden reality that will be brought into the earth by the Messiah. She is sitting in the foretaste first fruits reality. Her soul is a well-watered garden. She is existing in the bounty and the beauty of his provision and his abundance flowing from her into the earth. And in this condition, he says, let me hear your voice. The heavenly realities, the heavenly companions, they're listening for it. Let me hear your voice. And in that place, she says, come, Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus, and make haste on the mountains of spices. Make your haste on every, every obstacle and come for me. Amen and amen.